Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso, and I'm Anne Friedman. Hi, Anne. Hi, Amina Tuso. <laughs> I feel like you're about to troll me. Well, what are we talking about today? Okay, so we're talking about history and milestones, possibly fake milestones, like i.e. are historical milestones related to social justice a scam? Like that's kind of the underlying, <laughs> the underlying Ooh, theme of child. this week's episode, right? <laughs> So you're talking about the scam of women's suffrage? Tell me about it. Oh, my God. If only women scammed their way into, like, full, complete, unfettered suffrage 100 years ago. So, yeah. So this year marks 100 years since the U.S. House of Representatives approved a resolution that said to the U.S. government, hey, you can't stop women from voting. which is the 19th Amendment. And then when it was ratified the following year, 1920, it allowed 26 million women to cast their votes in time for the 1920 presidential election. What kind of women? Well, interesting you should ask that. And um, and also, like, what does it mean that it's like it allowed them to cast a vote? Like, you know, as we know from all kinds of voting rights shenanigans that have happened in our lifetime, there is the kind of like on paper who has the right to vote. And then there is like in practice who is actually able to exercise that right. And so basically like we wanted to talk to a historian, uh, give us the real talk on why and how suffrage was not the like, great, like let's just like dust off our hands. Now women have the right to vote. Cool. We're moving on kind of milestone that I think we're often taught that it is like my, my school textbook was definitely like, Check, check. Like, women got the right to vote. Cool story. So I talked to Lisa Tetro, who is an associate professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University, and she's also the author of The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory and the Women's Suffrage Movement. And um, I'm just going to let her explain what suffrage or women's suffrage as a milestone uh, was and wasn't all about. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great to be with you. We have a big, important milestone. um, Mm -hmm you know, that we are kind of right up upon for women's access to the vote. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about specifically what that milestone is and what it represented. We are coming up on the milestone of the so-called woman suffrage amendment, which will have its centennial next year. What the 19th Amendment, people often talk about the 19th Amendment as giving women the right to vote. And it in fact doesn't do that. In fact, in the Constitution, there is no granted right to vote for citizens of the United States. Suffrage has always been regulated by the states. And at the Constitutional Convention and um, in the you know subsequent ratification in the 1700s, they clearly left suffrage up to the states. And all the 19th Amendment does, and it's, it's not insignificant when it does, it says that you cannot discriminate in voting on the basis of sex. So what it means is that the states cannot have clauses in their constitution saying that voters have to be male, which many states did. Not all states. Many states had already dropped that before 1920. So one of the things that we get wrong is we miss all the women that were voting before 1920 
And the other thing we miss is that many women still could not vote after 1920 because although mail was dropped, it was still perfectly constitutional in many states, uh, for many states to have things like literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses. So lots of women were still barred from voting on other grounds, even though sex was no longer the thing that kept them away from voting. So 1920 is a really significant moment when the federal government intervenes in what is otherwise a state story and says you may not universally use mail to, to exclude voters, but it is not a, a conferral of a right to vote, because actually the United States has always been really clear that that's a privilege and not a right. Even though we think of it as the most basic right of American citizenship, it is in fact not actually a right that Americans possess. And the other thing is, is that it, it doesn't positively give people the right to vote. It just says you can't be barred it on the basis of sex. Right. And I feel like that distinction of like, are we, are we just not barring people or are we encouraging people all across the large swath of America to actually cast a vote and making that easy for them. Like these, this is a distinction that I think when I think about voting rights today is, is still the operable one, right? Like it's not just, yeah. Yeah. And so part of what happens is that tons of people are not enfranchised in 1920, lots and lots of women for a variety of reasons. Some are state disqualifications, right? That are usually racially targeted, if not, you know, racial uh, in their explicit language, which would have violated the 15th Amendment, the only other time before 1920 that the federal government interferes in state regulation of voting. One thing the U.S. Constitution does is still, to this day, allow states to discriminate in pretty much any way they say fit, see fit. There are only four amendments to the U.S. Constitution that regulate voting at the state level. The 15th Amendment, which is ratified in 1870, which says you can't discriminate on the basis of race. 1920, can't discriminate on the basis of uh, sex. Then no poll taxes. There's a constitutional amendment that says that. And there's another constitutional amendment which will say that people who are 18 and over can vote. And other than that, the states are still perfectly allowed to discriminate insofar as they see fit, constitutionally at least. There was then in 1965 the Voting Rights Act, and there have been some other legislation that has um, profoundly affected how the states can or cannot discriminate. And the Voting Rights Act was probably one of the most important and most effective pieces of federal legislation when it came to regulating voting. It struck down a lot of those things that the states were doing and um, uh, policed the states and kept them from doing some of those things, particularly in the South, so that a lot of women only got access to the ballot, women of color, in 1965 or after. And for other women, the things that barred them from voting were, you know, exclusions from citizenship. So Asian American women, Pacific Islander women, Native women were barred from voting because they were barred from citizenship. But the thing that um, talking about the right to vote doesn't equip us to realize is that there are still all kinds of ways in which the states can and in fact increasingly are disenfranchising Americans. It lulls us into a false sense of security when we talk about a right to vote because we presume that exists somewhere when in fact it does not. And as long as it does not, then states are still perfectly uh, capable of and allowed to discriminate in voting, particularly since the Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act in 2013 in Shelby v. Holder. Mm-hmm. I'm struck by the fact that just how much we want to believe that there's kind of a hard fight for a really clear win, and yeah. we just win and we keep going as opposed yeah, to saying... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the kind of narrative of American progress that we love, right? Um, you know, there were some problems, but we overcame them. Um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it's a sacred American myth in the way we narrate our own history. But 
Of course, the reality is much more complicated than that. It's, it's not quite the total win that we would like it to be. Right. And so your book from a few years ago is called The Myth of Seneca Falls. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about some of the other persistent myths related to suffrage, not just this idea that it was like all of a sudden then all women could vote, um, yeah. but maybe also some of the myths that apply to the period all those years before 1920. Yeah. I think many of the stories that we tell about suffrage are meant to convey certain morals, but they aren't necessarily the true story of what happened. Um, There are lots of other ways of narrating the same story by using different facts. So in my 2014 book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, what I was curious about was not the 1848 Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, but how and where did the story that gets built up around that convention take shape? Because it's not automatic that it would follow from that meeting that it was the birthplace of feminism and the birthplace of of the women's suffrage movement. So when and how did that story get born and how was it used and what political purposes did it serve? Um, And what I found was nobody really tells that story until the post-Civil War period, like some 30 to 40 years later. And that Stanton and Anthony fight really hard to make and tell that story and persuade the movement that it's the story to know. And they they use that story to try to um, do a variety of different things inside the movement and outside the movement. Inside, there's all kinds of fighting about who should be leading this movement. And inside the movement, Stanton and Anthony clearly use Seneca Falls to say, follow us. We originated the movement, therefore we are the movement, so we are the proper people to follow now um, as the movement splinters and um, goes into a great deal of factionalism. And the thing it does outside the movement is it says basically, we have had a long history of demanding this right and we should not be postponed any longer. So it does a variety of other political projects as well and trying to be explicit in our recognition of those political purposes of stories because I think once we get good at doing that, we can use that skill across a whole variety of ways in which people narrate the the, um, past and the present. Right. I mean, I think one thing that um, we obviously really wanted to talk about and highlight is the way that the narrative of when did white women or women with relative like financial power or class power get the right to vote is has sort of become like the voting timeline. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yep. it's like absolutely. I mean, ob- yeah, we obviously- narrate. Yeah, we narrate American history according to um, sort of, uh, you know, middling upper white class people. Yeah. So it's right. as if they stand in for all Americans, which, of course, they don't. Yeah, and I'm wondering about whether race as an issue even came up in, I mean, I understand it played a role in the early earlier founding days of the suffrage movement. I'm curious if you could just talk a, a little bit more generally about race and about who was sort of held up as the typical voter who's <laughs> who is going to get their rights because of these shifts. So yeah, race um, and racism runs through the suffrage movement in really powerful ways from beginning um, all the way through to you know whatever we want to date the end, um, and that's of course um, you know should be dated well past 1920. But racism among white suffragists is rampant. Uh, and for example, when in 1920 uh, the 19th Amendment passes and so many women of color still can't vote, they come to the flagship largely white suffrage organizations and say, um, "Help us, we can't vote," and they say, "Not our problem." And they basically just throw um, black women, Latina women, uh, you know, a whole variety of women just under the bus and say that's a race problem. It's not our concern. And the movement always was willing to sacrifice and throw women of color under the bus. It um, 
it tried very hard to court the white South, the white supremacist South, by saying just enfranchise white women and not women of color to try to get their support. And if you go all the way back to 1869, when the post-Civil War movement takes shape, there is uh, a very famous fight between Frederick Douglass uh, and Susan B. Anthony and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, where the 15th Amendment is proposed by Congress, passed by Congress, says you cannot discriminate in voting on the basis of race. It would have effectively enfranchised African-American men. And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton say, we refuse to support this because, you know, white women first. And it causes a huge rift in the movement. And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton say unspeakable things using all kinds of racial epithets about Sambo and ignorant black men. And Frederick Douglass says back, we need this. This is life or death. We are, being, we are having our brains dashed out on the pavement and we are being hung from lampposts. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony say, no, us first, white women, educated white women before anybody else. They lose that fight. The 15th Amendment gets ratified. But um, it's just another example of the ways in which the white suffrage movement was willing to define women as white and sort of leave out the needs of lots of other women of color. Right. And then um, do you see, I, I guess I'm curious about not, I mean, obviously, like I, we talk a lot about the way this is still something that affects feminist politics or like movement oh, yeah. activism yeah. even today. But I'm curious about closer to the immediate aftermath of the passage of the 19th Amendment. Is there something that like roots me more in this 2019, or sorry, 1919, 1920 era of like, once these self-appointed suffrage movement leaders realize that you know do they ever have a come around like did things shift once they felt a little more secure like okay we've got our rights it'd be nice to think that but no um <laughs> largely they continue to define the movement and the interests that are needed in terms of white women um and like i say you know what'll happen after 1920 is not that they continue those you know those self-appointed leaders of the suffrage movement not that they continue to fight for all women's voting the National American Woman Suffrage Association, one of the flagship organizations run by Carrie Chapman Catt, will turn into the League of Women Voters after 1920. And what it'll say is we should educate voters so that they can be in, you know, informed voters. They're not at all concerned for the women of color who come to them and say we can't vote. And then the other flagship suffrage organization, the National Women's Party, uh, run by Alice Paul, will uh, not again take up the cause of all women voting, but they'll instead um, shift and propose the first uh, draft of the Equal Rights Amendment, basically saying the Constitution now says you can't discriminate in sex based on voting. What if we had the Constitution say you can't discriminate on the basis of sex in any way? So they, in 1923, proposed the Equal Rights Amendment, and that becomes their cause. Right. In taking this long view of rights and progress, I know I kind of started out asking you about milestones that are not really as clear a milestone as we might like. I'm wondering if, from your perspective, you see certain things as milestones that we don't fully recognize as maybe the milestone they really they really were when, when this stuff is taught and this kind of easy narratives are dispensed. If there are some, some things that aren't just overblown, but maybe underappreciated. Absolutely. And those would be all the milestones that come after 1920. And those would be when a variety of different groups are, are brought into citizenship in the United States. 
1947, you get Native American citizenship and voting, although for many Native Americans, they see that as a kind of co-optation of their political power and a kind of colonialism and not necessarily something they desire. So I think one of the things we can also think about in terms of milestones is when does enfranchising people take away their sovereign rights? And a lot of Native Americans would see U.S. citizenship and voting rights as something that denied their sovereign rights. 1952, Asian Americans are brought into citizenship and voting. 2000, when the federal court says no territories can vote, uh, Puerto Rico, citizens of the United States, can't vote. Things like the many state laws that govern uh, disenfranchisement around felons, around a variety of other things. 1965, the Voting Rights Act. And 2013, Shelby County v. Holder, uh, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, are all incredibly important dates in the story of women and voting none of which we generally pay attention to in that in that story. They usually belong yeah. to other stories. Right. We don't see them as part of this, this as larger part of this narrative. Story. Right. And so mm-hmm. what we get is this kind of triumphalism, right, of 1920, because we leave off this latter part of the story. And if we bring that story to, to the 1920 story, then, you know, we have a very different kind of story. Uh, completely. I'm curious about the ways in which not just the most well-remembered actors of the suffrage movement, but as a more kind of like how this issue played out around kitchen tables or, or how it was discussed around America in, in the lead up to an aftermath of 1920. I'm curious about the ways that kind of like suffragists were p- portrayed. Um, I'm curious about, I guess I'm thinking about living through the debate over like Obamacare or things that feel very like, obviously like yes this is the way we want progress to march um and yet yet it was i mean obviously took a very very long time for this to be enshrined even with it being even with all the racist trappings right yep so I'm, i'm curious if you could just give a little bit of a sense of maybe the tone with which this debate played out it had its detractors, it had its supporters, and it was a national conversation for sure. Um, so the, the conversation you know, got louder at various points. And one of the things that happened is that the West takes mail out of its, constitu- its state constitutions much sooner than the East does. And there's this big question mark about why is the West willing to you know, not define voters as male so much sooner than the East. There were lots of conversations about how um, if women voted, they would destroy the family, which is, of course, a theme we hear constantly about, you know, proposed changes, came up with gay marriage, came up with interracial marriage, you know, everything's going to destroy the family. There were lots of cartoons impugning suffragists, you know, showing a man kind of sitting at a washing table with babies on his knees while the, you know, moms headed off to vote. And clearly, you know, this was the end of civilization. Um, so, and they were always white women, right? And then if you go to the South, there were lots of people who argued that if you enfranchised white women, this would be Negro domination, you know, as the term they would have used at the time. You know, this kind of fear mongering that was left over from the end of the Civil War that you can't enfranchise African Americans because it will, you know, it'll upset civilization itself. So there were all kinds of ways in which the opponents of women's suffrage really catastrophized what would happen if women were, you know, enfranchised or if, you know, women of color were enfranchised or if white women were enfranchised. But then at the same time, there were lots of Americans, the way there often are, people who thought this is just not that big a deal. It should be fine to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a knockdown, drag out fight. 
around ratification in various states. The liquor lobby was really concerned that if women got the right to vote, they would vote in temperance, which of course they did before the 19th Amendment. The 18th Amendment you know, put in place prohibition. So the liquor lobby was super afraid of women getting the right to vote. I have to correct my own language, not women getting the right to vote or women being enfranchised, I should say. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they did during the ratification fights was in the various states since states had to ratify the amendment for it to be attached to the Constitution was, you know, just get the legislators blasted drunk uh, the night before a vote and, um, and you know, try to persuade them to vote no. So it was, it was kind of a brawl in a circus in some ways. <laughs> I, I just think it's helpful to hear that sometimes when, um, when it's easy so many years later to kind of be like, I'm sure it was hard, but wasn't it all civil then? And they had no oh, social yeah, media, yeah, and, you know? <laughs> yeah, we always sanitize these stories, right? And they're, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, because um, we put an orderly narrative around it, you know? And it seems as if, oh, it just all proceeded according to plan, you know? And that's not at all how it happened. But, yeah. Right. And so if we're if we're trying to be precise with our language, you know, I know you stopped yourself at the kind of, like, right yeah, to vote I'm language. still correcting my own language, um, yeah. What would be some more precise terms that we would use when talking about suffrage and particularly like these milestones for women's suffrage? Yeah. So I think, you know, we can't say when women got the right to vote, A, because women are coded white in that situation, and B, there's no right to vote. It's difficult. I think what we say is when suffrage got extended, you know, when more and more people got brought into the franchise or because it is true. I mean, for all its limitations, uh, some historians and some political scientists have shown that 1920 was the largest single expansion of the franchise in U.S. history. Um, Mm. So it wasn't insignificant. Um, So we don't want to also erase that story in our in our kind of overcorrections. But I think saying when more and more people gained access to the ballot uh, might Mm -hmm. be a better way to put it. It's not as catchy on like a... No, it's definitely not as catchy. Yeah, (laughs) no, I know. It definitely makes this story a much harder sell. Um, But true, and we like that. (laughs) Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show. If our listeners want to find your work, what is the best place for them to connect with you? Probably my webpage, uh, Lisa Mm -hmm. Tatra at Carnegie Mellon University. And there's a couple other podcasts I did there. Uh, there is some, uh, some magazine articles I've written about the centennial and um, access to my book and some of my more scholarly work. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks. It was great to be with you. Woo, child. <laughs> Women's, the myth of Seneca Falls. Got it. Got also, it. just like Susan B. Anthony stomping around, claiming her legacy. Like, I hate it. And also, like, I can't help but be impressed by the tactic like you think this is something that people are doing on social media now I'm like she was really all about like I'm I'm laying claim to this Susan B. Anthony is like an OG bully like for real (laughs) (laughs) bullies throughout history I'm telling you I know only bullies get their name or, or, or likeness on like U.S. currency and like monuments let's be honest real 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 shit okay let's take a break
okay so like knowing what we know about the fact that like you know the right to vote is not just like one and done we also wanted to talk to some activists who are working to ensure that people who are parts of communities that have historically been disenfranchised actually have access to the vote like now in the year 2019 and um, also ideally in the year 2020 we love to see it. We love to see it. We Voter love to see the work. Yes, enfranchisement, 100%. And a lot of this work is happening at like the state and local level, which, you know, is something that's important to remember. Like it's not all like big, sexy national organizations that you are hearing about all the time. So the first person we talked to is Arika Bennett, who is the executive director of Mississippi Votes. They run voter registration, voter protection, and get out the vote campaigns that center young and marginalized people. Arika, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the history of Mississippi Votes and um, where... Mm -hmm where the kind of idea for this organization came from? Yeah, a lot of people think that I founded this organization. That is not true. I, re- <laughs> <laughs> I rebirthed the organization, I'll say. So uh, 2016, uh, a group of college students from Mississippi State University and Ole Miss got together based on some research that they were doing around voting trends in Mississippi. And if you know anything about Mississippi State and Ole Miss, you know that it's a PWI. Can I pause you and ask what a PWI is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Predominantly white institution. Got it. They did some initial research around, uh, like I said, voting trends in Mississippi, and um, they found that there were about 300,000 eligible voters who were unregistered in the state of Mississippi. And most of them obviously were from the more poor places in the state, uh, were young, were black, and fell in the lower end of the education spectrum. And so these white kids were doing uh, research on black folks, like white people normally do. (laughs) And... um, it just wasn't enough. They were going into communities to do voter registration um, with no um, impact from, you know, I'm registering to vote, then what, right? Um, and so I started kind of consulting, engaging folks from historically black colleges and universities. The first HBCU that was engaged was Jackson State University. Um, and they had these wonderful campus programs at JSU, um, Mississippi State and Ole Miss, and those students were just registering folks to vote, having voter registration drives, and that wasn't enough either. So uh, (laughs) I came on board as the executive director and kind of like took everything and kind of gutted the organization and put it to like three different programs. So now we have a policy and research program, we have the voter services program and the youth civic engagement program, which is like I said, kind of the lifeblood of what the organization's foundation was upon. And we started thinking about, like, you know, this needs to be this campaign because we understand that the 2018 to 2021 election cycles are going to be crucial to Mississippi's modern election history. And the way people show up will define the next decade of our lives as Mississippians. And so we expanded to just more women and girls, more black folks, more people of color. So last year we registered about 4,000 something young folks to vote and about 75% of the folks that we registered showed up on election day and voted to the point where we have dramatic increases on college campuses. That's the nuts and bolts of how I got to this place and like where we're going. 
I love that. And I'm curious about how you see voting rights as something that essentially all of us have to really work to protect or like maybe not even protect, but like make it really felt like make them like applicable to people's real lives rather than just being like, Oh great. This was the milestone X number of hundred years ago Mm -hmm. when this population got the right to vote. And I'm curious if you talk about that at all, the kind of like the historical angle versus, okay, like we have to keep doing this work. Yeah. Like how can we not talk about those pieces? Right. Cause you look at the, summer of 1964, we have the biggest voter registration, voter engagement and empowerment program to date to to be launched in a place like Mississippi, right? And so a part of what we're doing is a reiteration of that. Um, last year, some of the veterans from the summer of 1964 came and canvassed with us on National Voter Registration Day and helped us register folks. And so a lot of what we've been trying to do in terms of like expanding voter access and talking about who gets to even lead this work at Mississippi Votes. We're looking at folks who've lived on the fringes or who are living in the margins of whatever it means to be marginalized in Mississippi, like queer folks and black women and, and, and trans and femme folk. Uh, last year in one of the locations in South Mississippi, as I was giving my spiel, you know, I thought I was hot stuff. <laughs> and one of the, <laughs> the ladies got up and she was like, listen, Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. This is cute. But when I leave this place, granted, you know, y'all gave us some nice snacks. When I leave this place, the reality for me is that I have to find childcare for my baby. I have to figure out how I'm going to get to and from work tomorrow. So how is my registering to vote impacting my day-to-day life? And Sis was right, <laughs> and I had to, like, take a step <laughs> back in my pearls and be like, okay, all right. And so Full context, I started out my work in reproductive health and justice, so I got exactly what she was saying, but that wasn't enough for me to say this is what I can connect you to in that moment. It was us taking a step back after saying, okay, how can we engage community in a way that feels real, authentic, and give them what they need in order to see themselves as viable characters in their own lives? And so we partnered with uh, different direct service organizations this year and gave them a supplemental grant to do some extra engagement work because they already do wonderful work at engaging folks who may not ever come to a Mississippi Votes Forum, but they go to the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund or they go to the Children's Defense Fund, they go to Teen Health Mississippi. What does it mean to give those groups access to things that they need in order to do their work and in order to engage their um, their based authentically around an issue like voting rights that seems so far-fetched to a black mama who got to feed her baby when she get off work. You know, like constraints on the time of people who are marginalized in this country are extremely real. Where do you kind of find the line between like these are big structural changes that we need to make Mm -hmm. to enable people like her to be voters Mm -hmm. versus like what is emotional or what is like based on knowledge or something like that? So several, several things. I know, uh, sorry, that was huge. <laughs> it was always clear to uh, me that voter registration is cute. Um, and, you know, voter education forms are nice and they're necessary. But, or also and, <laughs> um, <laughs> the civic engagement doesn't just mean registering to vote. It means 
participating during the legislative session and trying to get some of these problematic and voter suppressive laws or whatever out of place, right? So last year I took some of um, our students to the Capitol after engaging several legislators around online absentee voting for college students. Literally, there is a process in place already that allows folks who are serving in the military overseas to vote online in the state of Mississippi. That process could have been adopted for college students who want to vote. And you'd be surprised that particular bill did not come up in committee, which means it didn't make the floor. Two, that the legislator that introduced this piece of legislation didn't defend it, didn't offer it to be on the agenda, and also ran, not not ran because he was old, but like literally rushed out of the committee room away from myself and about two or three students when we were like, you said this was going to come. So there's a lot of different layers to this for me, but we literally, in the face of a solution being presented to us, run away from what we say we're going to stand up for in a committee hearing. So that, 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 yeah. Wow. (laughs) Like physically ran away from you. Oh, yeah. Like made eye contact and like saw me coming towards and walked clean out the door. And and it wasn't about me at that point. Be clear, it was about the young people who were with me because they they're in a position where they see power and elected official seat, right? And so there are so many different solutions that already exist that we could be um, utilizing to expand voter access. Well, it's convenient for them, right? Like, it's much more convenient to be like, oh, young people just aren't interested in voting than it is for them to yeah. take some responsibility for the ways people have to actually cast a vote. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's stressful and it's disheartening, but it's also, like, encouraging because a couple of our students, they... uh we're like, you know, this is kind of trash. I'm going to run for office. And so, <laughs> yes, and so the best outcome. you know, and so part of it is like, all right, cool. We want young people to be uh, excited about not just participating in the electoral process, but also running for office because they can. So a number of our students, uh, maybe two, um, have decided to seek public office. And I'm excited and proud of them for even doing a thing like that, because I would be scared out of my mind. But yeah um have you ever thought about running for office in my dreams no (laughs) no no I haven't um I think I'm much more effective in this capacity and or in the classroom so okay I'm just saying I'm listening to you and I was like "Hmm." (laughs) my donor my donor button finger is itching that's all I want you to know (laughs) um if our listeners want to learn more about the work you're doing or support your work, where can they find it? And where can they find yeah, it? Yeah, we are super funny and interactive on Twitter. <laughs> so tw- Twitter, right. Instagram, Facebook, it's all at M-S-V-O-T-E-S. And if you want to like learn more or partner or send us nice gifts, you can email us at info at msvotes.org or visit msvotes.org and see all the cool stuff on our website. Awesome. Arika, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
Go, Arika Bennett. This is great. I, uh, this makes me really excited. I know. Okay, well, just like hang on because we're not done yet. I also chatted with Dewana Thompson, who is the founder of Woke Vote. She is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and Woke Vote activates trains, mobilizes all kinds of amazing active verbs, <laughs> historically disengaged voters of color. And she is really out here doing the work of like, hello, we did not pass something in like 1965 or 1920 and call it a day. Like this is something we have to actively protect month to month, week to week. Dewana, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's exciting. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so when we talk about suffrage or the right to vote in 2019, I would love to know what that means to you in terms of what you are seeing on the ground with the work that you're doing. Right. Well, and as a black woman from Birmingham, from the South, I think that we've historically had a, re- a odd relationship with the right to vote, with the activism that it took to to actually secure that right for people of color in the South. And so I think that, you know, when you think about um, 2019 and the fact that we're still fighting to increase access to voting, to make sure that people aren't, you know, being impacted by voter suppression and voter intimidation, while there's been quite, you know, some great strides made, we still have a lot of work to do, and it's just prevalent um, when we look at races like A.C. Abrams' race in Atlanta or Andrew Gillum's race in Florida, we know that people were inherently denied the right to vote, and many of those people were black black people and black women. And so I think the work that we're doing right now is critical. I think that it builds upon a legacy of those who know that one way to liberate our communities is through the vote, and we're just going to keep pushing. Yeah, and I'm curious about what you say to folks who are like, yeah, we have voting rights. What's the big deal? (laughs) Like someone who might be divorced from some of the issues that you are really seeing as relevant to affecting who is practically casting a ballot, like not just who is sort of like on paper able to, but who is really enabled and empowered to vote in our country right now. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things we always say as we're engaging is like, you know, if they didn't, if the right to vote wasn't so precious, people wouldn't be trying to take it away from you. Um, and in some places, <laughs> that, that. You know, like, right? And in some spaces, spaces that works. And then with some people, you know, it doesn't. And I think what we have really tried to focus on is the fact that voting is a tool in our liberation toolbox. It's not the only tool, right? But for so many people, the first sort of entryway into justice work or into um, activism is through the vote. And so we try to help them to understand that while every time we cast a vote, it may not be for the winning candidate or, you know, we may not always see the turnout that we want in an election, it's a part of a larger process. And so you can't throw away the voting part of the strategy for liberation. And I think that helps people to really reimagine what voting is and why it's important. And the other thing that we seek to do most importantly is to decentralize candidates and to refocus on building the electoral power of the communities that we serve. And so it's more about how do we utilize our voting power to bring about the change that we need versus how do we vote for this candidate so they can get an office. Right. And I think like that big picture is something that 
I know it took me a long time to come around to that idea, right? Like I was kind of raised of yeah. like, oh, you evaluate like some people who are on the ballot, you like them or you don't, and that's it. Like it, I wasn't taught yeah. in high school how it fits into this bigger picture of like voting yeah. people who vote as an important constituency. And and I feel like your work really addresses that too. It's like, oh, if we're if we're all voting, we become more of a force to be reckoned with. Like people have to sit up and listen. And right. does part of your work involve speaking to folks who might not understand a lot of the mechanics of like essentially why someone wouldn't turn out to vote are you kind of explaining like okay this is what's really happening on the ground for people yeah all the time. <laughs> how, how would you kind of explain that to someone who is maybe like listen like I vote all the time what's the big deal when you haven't had a burden or a barrier to voting, there is this privilege of being able to walk in and cast your vote that you don't even recognize because you've never had that experience. But if you're someone who has attempted to register to vote, show up, the machines don't work, show up, someone tells you you're in the wrong place, show up, someone tells you that, oh, you can't vote because last week we changed the rules. Like those kinds of things are happening in so many spaces, particularly in marginalized communities, that it, it has created a disdain in a lot of ways for the process. And so when we start to give those real life examples of how people are, you know, experiencing their voter suppression and, and voter intimidation, that begins to change the conversation. Because, uh, you know, for most people, if they haven't experienced it, on the surface, it seems like everybody can just walk in. On the surface, it seems like everybody has access. But when you start to show that, whether it be through video or our favorite is bringing people who been impacted by um, voter suppression or voter intimidation and like letting them tell their story in those spaces and lifting those voices up, it, it automatically changes the conversation for people who are like, oh, okay, well, I see why this is an issue because, right, if all you did was move and for some reason no one, you know, allowed you to update your voter, you know, voter information, that's a problem. And so I think it's giving people real life examples a lot of times and taking it like out of this narrative of if it's accessible to me, it's accessible to everyone and helping people to see it like, no, actually, your neighbor, someone in your community was not able to vote because of something erroneous, right? And I think when you do that, that helps with the conversation a little bit more than just saying, let's all fight for this because nobody, some people are, are having issues and, and, and some people aren't. Yeah, and I, I really, I feel like I have to ask you as we're all like watching these 2020 Democratic candidates fight it out. I hear what you're saying in terms of like, look, this is about building a broader base of power. This is not about right. one candidate. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, when I think about like, for example, all that energy behind Obama, I think about people who were really drawn into the process by that one candidate. Right. And, yeah. and I'm wondering how you right. balance those things of like both people understanding the big picture. But like at the end of the day, it's easier to get out of bed for a candidate you just really believe in, you know. Right. I think um, while I agree with you that there, I mean, I worked on both presidential elections for President Barack Obama, and there was something absolutely magnetic, something just insane, really, about those two election cycles. But what I would say is this, and I have to believe it to be true. One of the things that I was taught when I was working on President Obama's campaign in 2008 he told us, he got on the call one day and he said, listen, people are going to come in for me, but they're going to stay for you. And what he meant by that is 
people, you know, are going to get excited about what they may hear me say, but whether or not they stay in this campaign and whether or not they stay involved after this campaign and whether or not they feel empowered is really based on their, their interaction with you as an organizer and you as a person that's talking about, you know, what our policies are. And in that, he really emphasized the power of the organizer and the power of our voices and how we can change our communities. And so what I've seen is that, Yes, a candidate that can embody and move us is a luxury. It is a privilege. It is not something that should be incredibly necessary to motivate people, especially when people are hurting, especially when people are being left out, especially when when there's so much at stake. The privilege of falling in love with a candidate is something special, but it is not a requirement. And I think that we're in a moment right now, a very critical moment in our country where, yes, I want to fall in love with my candidate, but more importantly, I want to save my community. And if it means getting out here and making sure that the people who are running for office reflect my values, if it means that, you know, I may not like to see them play basketball, but I but they can actually argue my court case, of, you know, effectively, whatever that may be, we're talking about right now the critical moment that we're in. And so maybe we'll get to another space in time in our politics where we can fall in love with candidates and, and, and you know, fan out on, you know, fan out on them. But I think right now what we have to fall in love again is what it means to be American, what it means to be community-minded, what it means to be my brother's keeper, what it means to provide resources. We have to fall in love again with what that is and let that be the guide for this 2020 election cycle. I love that. And I cannot think of a better note to end on, honestly. So I'm not even going to ask you another question. <laughs> I'm just okay. going to let it end there. If, um, if our listeners want to get involved with Woke Vote or find out more about the work that you are doing, where can they find you? Absolutely. We are on every social uh, site. Uh, we also have as Woke Vote, W-O-K-E-V-O-T-E. Um, our website is www.wokevote.us. And if you want to get in contact with me and, and the lovely firm that I support and, and co-founded, which is Think Rubik's, you can find us at www.thinkrubix.com. Thank you so much, Dewana. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You know, this conversation is fascinating to me because I think that it's fair to say that in the entire world, America as a country has suspiciously low uh, voter turnout. And people complain about that a lot without realizing that um, some people want to vote and our obstacles are placed in them every step of the way to get them to vote, right? So when we talk about turnout, don't lump voters of color in that (laughs) because voters of color are actually like doing their damn best to have access to vote and historically are the ones who like show up the most. It's also just so interesting to me. Interesting, a nebulous word that you use when you don't want to say what you actually think. It remains your most Midwestern quality, using interesting in this way. (laughs) I love it. But, you know, it's it's just this thing where I was like, I never see this anywhere. But in America, this is so acutely true that there is an entire political party whose strategy revolves around the fewest number of people possible showing up to vote. Right? That is it. Like, that's wild, and That is wild. And we let them get away with it. Right. I mean, well, not everyone. Like, clearly, Arika and Dewana are not letting them get away with it. But, like, yeah, like, th- this idea, too, that, like, hmm, like, I wonder why there is such high voter turnout among, like, 
wealthy old white retired people like who has the time who has the resources who has the support of like a lot of people in government where they actually want them to cast a vote it's not rocket science oh my gosh well i am really grateful for all of these people doing the hard work because it's important right now and it'll be important in the future Yes. So thanks to our guests, uh, Lisa Tetro, Arika Bennett, and Dewana Thompson. And we will link to Mississippi Votes and Woke Vote in the show notes if you want to click through and maybe kick a little money their way, see about how you can get involved if you live in one of the areas where they work, or maybe just signal boost, tweet and support the work that they are doing because um, now is definitely the time to do it, like not two weeks before the presidential election in 2020. <laughs> See you at the polls, boo-boo. I will see you at the polls. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by robin original music composed by carolyn penny packer riggs our logos are by canisha sneed we're on instagram and twitter at callyrgf where sophie carter khan does all of our social our associate producer is jordan bailey and this podcast is produced by gina delvac 